Welcome to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. This week, I sit down with Hillary Mason, a data scientist in residence at Excel Partners and founder and CEO of Fast Forward Labs. We chat about current research projects her company's focused on, adoption hurdles companies face with emerging technologies, and the AI technology ecosystem, what's most intriguing for the short term, and what technologies will have the biggest long-term impact. Enjoy the episode. Thank you for joining me today, Hillary. Oh, thanks for having me. So let's start with a little bit about your background and the journey that led to you founding Fast Forward Labs. Sure. So I'll try to keep it brief. But, um, you know, I started my career in computer science um, and came from academia, you know, in the early 2000s. And I had done a few projects and realized a lot of the interesting problems were in industry. Um, And I also realized you could actually get paid to build cool stuff, which I know sounds completely obvious today. But I can tell you that in the early 2000s, that was not really uh, common knowledge or the general consensus. Um, So I moved back to New York City, uh, went on a sabbatical, and uh, after a few misadventures, ended up becoming the chief scientist at Bitly, which is a social media analytics company with short links Mm -hmm. on the social web. Um, And that was really exciting. So that was in 2009, uh, when all of a sudden, this really large, interesting data set about human behavior online was accessible to people in a company of 10. Um, And that it had so much potential for answering questions like, you know, how do ideas spread? Um, What makes something more interesting than not? How do we even define interesting? What do people like to read about online? What's the half-life of different types of content? Um, And so I built out a team at Bitly where our goal was really to invent the future of the product and the business through the the data and technology we had. Um, And we did that. And it was at the very early uh, emergence of data science as a profession. And so we did that, I think, quite effectively. Um, I eventually moved on to take a data scientist in residence role at Excel Partners, which is a venture capital firm based in Palo Alto, um, doing a lot of different things, but among them, you know, technical diligence, which is always a lot of fun. And then also advising companies in the portfolio around their data questions. Um, And from there, I realized about half the questions I was dealing with were really technical um, and always fun. And the other half were really more on the category of CEO therapy, um, you know, sort of process people uh, planning strategy questions. Um, And those two things together, so the work I've done at Bitly, where you can build new kinds of products through data technology, and then also, you know, that sort of strategy and technical advising came together in what is Fast Forward Labs where we do independent machine learning applied work. Um, We write our own reports on these things. We build prototypes of techniques that are emerging but are not yet widely understood. Um, And then we also act as advisors or like nerd best friends for our clients who are trying to build these things inside of their organizations. And our clients tend to be about two-thirds Fortune 500 large companies, lots of data and resources, um, but a lot of that sort of uh, inherited process and thinking around risk-taking that might need to modernize a bit Um, And then the rest are startups, people building brand new products with machine learning capabilities. So it's really a lot of fun. And so what's the kinds of different projects you work on with the the large companies versus the startups? Like, how do they differ? 
And so startups are easier. They're typically starting from scratch. They're building a new product or new business where machine learning is core to the business capability. And so they're usually going after some market where people typically pay money to a human to do something. And now it can be at least partially automated. Um, and that, that's a pretty good profile of the startup side of the work we do. Um, and we have folks working on, you know, human resources, legal, uh, in finance and investing, in, um, you know, assistance and time management stuff. It's a pretty wide variety of areas where people have found these opportunities. Um, and there is always that, you know, core data component. On the large company side, um, you know, it, it crosses different industries, but we tend to see people really do a data project when they can reduce the cost of something they're already paying to do, because those are things that are much less risky because at the end of the year, you can point to the amount of money saved. Um, and that gives people, most companies are just getting started. So it really gives people permission to do other things as well. So we see people kind of start with things where they're automating or enhancing something that exists today. And we're starting to see people uh, sort of launch new businesses or new products that are only possible because of the data they have inside their company and new machine learning capabilities. And can you talk a little bit about the current research projects that you're working on right now and what you're learning? Yeah. So, um, you know, the I'll talk about two. Um, so we've done a project in uh, summer, automated summarization that I'm very excited about, and that is one applying uh, neural networks to text um, where you can put in a single article and it will extract, this is extractive summarization, it extracts sentences from that article that combined together contain the same information in the article as a whole. We also have another formulation of the problem, which is multi-document summarization, uh, where we applied this to Amazon product reviews. Uh, so you can put in 5,000 reviews and it will tell you these reviews tend to, to cluster in these 10 ways. And for each cluster, here's the summary of that cluster of reviews. Hmm. Um, and so it gives you the capability to read or understand, you know, thousands of documents very quickly. So it's like the cliff notes. Yes. Automated cliff notes. Automated cliff notes. Uh, and that's a very, that is very cool to me because it's something that is only recently possible. It's very useful. Um, and it's a lovely tech problem. It, it's a great application of neural networks to text analysis. Um, and I think we're going to see a ton of, of really interesting things built on the techniques that underlie that. So it's not just summarization, but it's making sentences and languages computable. And that's a pretty exciting direction to go in. Uh, we're also currently working on a probabilistic programming report and prototype, which we're wrapping up this month. Um, and so that is ap easier applications of Bayesian inference. And what's interesting there is that these techniques have been possible for a very long time, um, unlike some of the neural network stuff that has only recently become possible to afford to have the amount of data you need and the amount of GPU computation you need. This stuff's been around for a while. What's different is the emergence of these um, probabilistic programming languages that mean that rather than having to have a stats PhD and months of time, anyone, anyone who can program can start to pick up these tools um, and develop these models. Um, the other thing that interests me very much is that they work very well on small or noisy data sets, unlike neural networks, which require large and clean data sets. Uh, and most people, if we're being really honest here, 
uh, don't have large and clean data sets that they can apply to their problems. Right. And what is your framework for choosing the technologies that you research and prototype? So we're looking for things that are going to be useful in the next year or two. Mm -hmm. Um, And that means first gathering up as big a list as possible, which means drinking a lot of coffee or whatever you prefer, reading science fiction, going to art shows, um, reading a lot of research articles, just trying to find find ideas, whether they're good ideas or bad ideas, um, gathering them all up. And then we go through and evaluate them on four criteria. So the first is all of these things are really to answer the question, is this more possible this year than it was last year? And if so, why? And so the first is, has there been new research that makes this more likely to work? Um, and sometimes that is, you know, a breakthrough paper. More often, it's that research in another domain or another area can be applied to a problem in a different area. So we see something, you know, way over there in another field that might be relevant here. Um, The second one is really, is there data available that lets us address the problem? The third is whether the economic constraints are changing. So when we first looked at deep learning for image analysis, we could not afford the GPUs necessary and there were no suitable cloud offerings to even attempt the project. Uh, We came back to it a year later and Amazon Web Services offers a GPU machine for an expensive but reasonable price. You could afford to buy um, like an NVIDIA Titan card. So the economics had changed dramatically. So we're we're tracking those things. Um, And then the last thing is looking for commoditization, mostly in open source. So are people building libraries and tools that you can use to build your own solution on top of these things. Um, And we, you know, again, see that deep learning is a great example with uh, the emergence of TensorFlow and then libraries from other companies as well. Right. And so what are some of the biggest adoption hurdles for, I was going to focus on AI specifically, but it doesn't need to be that, I guess, for Uh emerging technologies. So I think the biggest adoption hurdle There are two that I'll say. The one is that sometimes these technologies get used because they're cool, not because they're useful. And so if you build something that's not useful, people don't want to use it. Right. Um, And that can be a a struggle. Uh, And then the second thing is that uh, people are generally, you know, resistant to change. And so whenever you're in an organization and you're trying to advocate for the use of a new technology to make the organization more efficient, you will likely run into friction. Um, And in those situations, it's a matter of time and um, making the people who are most resistant look good. Right. And can you offer some, you know, what kinds of advice or strategies or techniques do you typically bring to these companies who are trying to implement new technologies? So it's really, um, I mean, that's a very broad question. Sure. So, um, So it's really focusing in on what actually matters to make a difference. So um, in machine learning, there's a terrible insult that says you have a beautiful solution to an irrelevant problem, right? So, and data scientists and and AI folks tend to get very excited about the technical aspects of their work. And I'm certainly first among them. Um, But it doesn't matter if you're not having a a noticeable impact. So it's really helping people to ask the right questions and focus on the problems that will make a big contribution rather than some tiny incremental improvement. That's a little bit of advice. Yeah. (laughs) And so 
in your research and in in your company and outside your company, what AI technology are you finding most intriguing for the, the short term? And what do you think will have the most impact? That's a really good question. I think the answers are different. So I'm particularly intrigued at the moment by um, being able to model language. Um, that's something where I think, you know, we can't yet imagine the ultimate applications of these things. Um, but it, it starts to make things that previously would have seemed impossible possible. So things like automated novel writing, um, you know, poetry, things that, you know, we would like to argue are purely um, human creative uh, enterprises. It, it starts to make them seem like something we may one day be able to automate, which I'm personally very excited about. But the impact question is a really good one. And I think it is not one technology that will have that impact. And it's the same reason we're starting to see all these different AI things, AI products pop up. It's the ensemble of all of the techniques that are falling under this umbrella together um, that is going to have that kind of impact and enable applications like the Google Photos app, which is my favorite AI product, or self-driving cars, um, or, you know, things like Amazon's Alexa, but actually smarter, right? That's that's a collection of different techniques. Why is Google's um, I image search your favorite? <laughs> so it's my favorite because it is technically extremely complex and hard to build that. Um, it allows you to, to do queries in the form of, you know, show me photos of Hillary in Arizona with a tree, um, <laughs> which is amazing. And yet the product is so simple and the user experience is so good that those that amazing technical complexity is completely in the background. You don't even notice it unless you really stop to think about how it might work. Um, and that's why I love it. And so what would you say is missing in the AI conversation today? There are a few things missing. Um, I think we tend to focus on the hype and eventual potential without thinking critically about how we get there um, and what can go wrong along the way. Um, so this is a very, we have a very optimistic conversation, which is something I appreciate. I'm an optimist and I am very excited about all of this stuff. Um, but we don't really have a lot of critical work being done in things like um, how do we debug these systems? What are the consequences when they go wrong? How do we maintain them over time and operationalize and monitor their quality and success? Um, and what do we do when these systems infiltrate um, pieces of our lives where automation may have highly negative consequences? And by that, I mean things like medicine or criminal justice. Um, and so I think there are there's a big conversation that is happening, but the wisdom still is missing. We haven't gotten there yet. And what would you say we need to do so that we we direct our path away from the dystopian end? I mean, I the very simple thing is that we always need to have a human override. Um, and this is, you know, I saw a news story maybe six months ago about twins who went to get their driver's permit and the first twin got hers and the second twin was refused because that person's photo was already in the system <laughs> and they couldn't help her. They're like, oh, well, the computer won't let us do it. You have to go home. Um, and that was just a, a fantastic example of, you know, the system's obviously broken. Why can't a human at the DMV just, you know, override? I think that that's the just completely obvious thing, especially, you know, when it's it's government or medicine or one of these really high, high impact systems. 
Um, the second thing that needs to happen is that people really need to be aware of what these systems are doing and how they work. And so we need to have a technical conversation about the importance of interpretability in the models that we deploy into those sorts of capabilities. Right. And so to close our conversation today, what and or who are you finding most inspiring? <laughs> there are there's so much exciting stuff happening right now. I mean, there are a lot of fiction authors that I think are have a great perspective on potential futures. So Ramez Nam is one um, who writes pretty brilliant books. Peter Hamilton is another, Alistair Reynolds. Um, lots of really cool stuff happening there. Um, it also, on the science fiction front, I was pretty excited to see it's the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. Um, you know, we can't underestimate that influence. Uh, and so, uh, so that's one direction. Um, I'm also really inspired by the work of folks like Kate Crawford, who are really working on these difficult questions around what it means to put these systems in place in our society. Um, and folks like DJ Patil, who are in the White House, sort of making sure that our government can take advantage of them. There's, there's just so much great work happening, though. It's hard to say. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Hillary. It's been fun. Oh, thanks for having me. You can find Hillary on Twitter at H. Mason. Thank you for listening. And as always, remember to subscribe to the O'Reilly Radar podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. Oh.